I'll echo that. Thank you guys for singing, and thank you, worship team, for leading us in that. Uh, and church, thank you. Thank you, because I didn't even say anything, and I heard, without even looking out at you, I heard people rustling, bending down to grab their Bibles. This is fantastic, because every Sunday, you know what we do? We grab our Bibles, we open them up, and we're going to look at it. We want to know, what does the Lord have to say to us today, right? That's the, that's the thing. I'm so grateful to Jay Mabry, who uh, kicked off our series in First Peter last week, and I'm grateful to Caleb, who, as he's uh, prayerfully considering what songs that we're going to sing, he's looking at the scripture text, and he's asking the Lord to guide those decisions. I'm grateful to each of you who look in your bulletin, and you're like, oh, what's the sermon text for next week? I'm going to read ahead. I'm going to be ready, because there's something that I think we often miss when it comes to the Word of God. And the thing that we miss is that the sermon, that moment of opening the word together in the gathered worship of the saints, that moment is not about the preacher, right? This act, what we're doing right now, the sermon is not about the preacher. Uh, it's, it's about the word. It's about asking God to speak to his people. And I have a responsibility in that, but guess what? So do you. This is a communal act. It's a, it's a moment where we together go to the Word, not I go to the Word and struggle to keep your attention for the next 30 minutes. If you're lucky, usually it's closer to 45, right? No, it's, it's a communal act where all of us come together before the Word and say to God, speak, Lord, your people are listening. And so what I want to encourage us this morning is to break out of the habit. We've broken a lot of habits because the stage doesn't look like it does. I don't normally preach in purple. So let's break that habit this morning of thinking that you are now passive recipients of a prepared message. No, this is a point in time where the people of God gather together and say, Lord, speak to and speak through us. All right, so with that little uh, brief aside, it felt compelled by the Lord, I believe, to say that this morning. Let's go to the Word. And we're going to be in 1 Peter, and we're going to be looking at chapter 1, verses 3 through 12. Now, last week when Jay kicked us off, he was looking at just the introduction, right? How does Peter address himself to his audience, right? Peter was one of the apostles. If, if you think about it, he was kind of the apostle. When you, when you look in the gospels, who is it that time and time again is there to put his foot in his mouth? It's Peter, right? Who is it time and time again who draws the favorable attention of the Lord, right? We all make fun of Peter because he stepped out of the boat and he sank in the waves. He took his eyes off of Jesus. But how many other disciples were still in the boat? There was only one of them out on the waves who even dared, who even tried, and it was Peter, right? When, when all the other disciples were like, well, some are saying you're this and some are saying you're that, Jesus, Peter's the one who said, look, you're the Messiah. Can we just be frank for a moment? Peter was the one who was always stepping forward. He was always saying, no, let's go to the next. Let's go to the next. Let's go to the next. And Peter has that kind of Attitude? I don't know if that's the right word for it, but that, that atmosphere around him of somebody who's just like, look, there's the hill, let's go take it, right? There's the enemy, let's go get him, right? There's, the, there's where we're trying to get, 
Let's do it. Peter is not somebody who backs down from a challenge. And as we walk through this book together, as Jay said last week, you know, this is written to a bunch of people. Peter says, you're not home yet. You're, you're chosen exiles. You are living in a land that is not your own. I want us to feel some of Peter's attitude as well. The title of this series is called Living Hope. And, and the purpose of that title is for us to remember that we are supposed to be doing something with the hope that we have. I, the title is not meant to describe the hope. It's not meant to say we have a hope and it's alive. No, the, the, the title is meant to point us to the fact that this hope that we have in Christ compels us to do something regardless of our circumstances. Very much like Peter was always doing something in his life. And so uh, as we walk through this, that's my hope that we would see that hope, a living hope. Now, we sang a song today about Jesus Christ, my living hope, right? We, we, we talk about this idea of living hope, but I want to give you a definition before we get to the text of living hope. Are you ready for this? Some of you are note takers and you're like, I'm ready. And others of you are like, All right, so if you're taking notes, living hope is hope that makes a difference in our lives. Hope that is living is hope that makes a difference in our lives. I hope to get in shape. And it's been 22 years since I've stepped foot in a gym. I hope to lose some weight. I ate two cheeseburgers last night. Do you see how my hope in that context is not actually hope? It might be a good wish, but it's not a living hope. It hasn't produced any sort of transformation in my life. I'm not going to the gym. I'm not eating better than I was. I hope to get my finances in order, but I don't want to make a budget, right? I hope that my kids love Jesus but I don't want to make decisions that would point to his incredible worth in my life. I hope that my coworkers come to Christ, but I'm not going to open my mouth to share with them. Do you see the difference that living hope makes? I hope to lose some weight, so I'm going to change the way I eat. I hope to get in shape, so I'm going to go to the gym every morning before I go to work. I hope that my, the gospel makes a difference in my kid's life. And so I'm going to invite them into my walk with Christ. I'm going to let them see me on my knees. I'm going to let them see me opening the word. I'm going to let them see me making the gathering of the saints a priority. Do you see the difference that it makes? I hope my coworker comes to Christ. And so I'm going to look for opportunities to build relationships that lead to gospel conversations. There's hope and then there's living hope. And that's Peter's focus all throughout this book. He's going to be focused on the kind of hope that makes a difference in people's lives. The kind of hope that is alive and is changing things. That's what he's going to focus on. So look with me now. We're going to read this whole text 
3 through 12, and I want us to look for that living hope. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because of his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. You are being guarded by God's power through faith for a salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. You rejoice in this, even though now for a short time, if necessary, you suffer grief in various trials so that the proven character of your faith, more valuable than gold, which, though perishable, is refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though not seeing him now, you believe in him and You rejoice with inexpressible and glorious joy because you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that would come to you searched and carefully investigated. They inquired into what time or what circumstances the spirit of Christ within them was indicating when he testified in advance to the sufferings of Christ and to the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you. These things have now been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Angels long to catch a glimpse of these things. Do you see that description of the kind of hope that makes a difference? We're going to walk through this, and I'm going, to, I'm going to point out some things, some elements, I think, of that hope, some of the reasons for it, some of the purpose for it, but I want us to understand that Peter is setting the stage for everything that he's getting ready to tell us throughout this book. Now, the risk that we run by walking through a book over a series of weeks is that we will forget it's meant to be a package deal. There's going to be times in the coming weeks where when we get to a text, it's going to sound an awful lot like Peter's telling us what to do. That's because he is telling us what to do. But he's telling us what to do on the basis of hope, on the basis of Christ and what Christ has done. Peter is not encouraging us to a new sort of legalism. He's not encouraging us to be modern day Pharisees. He is encouraging us to let the hope that Christ has given us actually do what it is meant to do. And so as I describe the hope today, what I want you to do, what my prayer is that you would do, is that you would file these things away, and over the coming weeks, as we spend time walking through Peter's discussion, walking through his encouragement, walking through his commands, that we would remember this is all on the basis of what Christ has done. Our, Our hope is not based in us. It's not based in our merit. It's not based in our righteousness. Our hope is based on Christ. And that is the thing that is meant to be driving us. That is the thing that is meant to be encouraging us to let hope make a difference in our lives. The first thing that Peter talks about regarding describing the hope, and again, in the coming weeks, we'll get to what we do with it. But the first thing he says in describing it is, look, we are alive, That sounds like a deep thing. Oh, hey, guess what, guys? The clicker doesn't work, so you guys will have to play with that up there if you don't mind. All right, so the 
thing that he gets us to is our hope is alive because we are alive. Look, look at what he says in verse three, right? It is because of his great mercy that he has given us new birth. Now this morning it's particularly poignant because we just watched three pictures of the new birth that Christ brings. Three young ladies stood up in front of this gathering, and, and some of you missed that because you attend our 915 service, and that's okay. But, but three young ladies stood up at the beginning of our service, and they said, Jesus Christ has done something I couldn't do for myself. Ephesians chapter 2, Paul says that we were dead in our sins and our trespasses, but God has made us alive. Jesus himself said, unless a man be born again, he cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. And that's the same thing that Peter does. So you've got Paul, you've got John, you've got Jesus, you've got Paul, Paul, Peter, Paul, and Mary, and whoever else I'm thinking, okay? Look, you've got all the New Testament writers all testifying to the same thing. New birth is required for salvation. Jay talked about it last week. We can't do that for ourselves. How many of you chose your parents? How many of you chose to be born? No, that, that was, God did that. And God does this. When we see those three girls standing up there making that profession, what they're doing is they're saying, God has done something for me that I couldn't do for myself. And it's a picture of new life. And Peter says, your hope is based in the fact that you are now alive. Once, scripture tells us, we walked in our sins, once we walked as the Gentiles do in the futility, in the darkening of our minds, but now the light of Christ has shone and we are made alive with him. Our hope is alive because we spiritually have been resurrected by Christ. This is one of the most fundamentally important concepts to grasp. If you want to understand the gospel, you have to understand this. You were dead in your sins, Jesus offers to make you alive. You were dead in your sins, Jesus is alive, and he says, I can do for you what's been done for me. If we are not alive, we have no hope. But the flip side is also true. How many of you guys have heard of a guy named Stephen Hawking? Stephen Hawking, theoretical physicist, I can't understand 98% of what he wrote, but I can understand some of what he said. While there, hey, look, it's working again. Sorry, Caleb. Now we're good. While there is life, there is hope. Now, this is not original to Stephen Hawking. As a matter of fact, poets throughout the centuries have been saying this very same thing. But it's amazing when you think about the fact that Stephen Hawking would quote that. If you know Stephen Hawking, you knew that his health made it so he could not move. He couldn't breathe on his own. He got to the point where he couldn't even speak. As a matter of fact, the lecture that he gave in which he quoted this was a lecture that was delivered through a synthetic voice. He has to have a had to have a computer speaking for him. While there is life, there is hope. Christ follower, I don't care what you're going through. Jesus has made you alive. And as long as you're alive, there is hope. And so Peter can say our hope is alive because we are. He drives us to that point. But we're not alive because of some merit inside of us. We're, we're not alive because we did the work. 
we're alive and therefore our hope is alive because our Savior is alive. This new birth that comes about is not something that we've done. Look at that, the rest of verse three. The new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of the dead. How is it that we are alive? We're only alive because Jesus is alive. We only have hope because Jesus didn't stay in the grave. If Jesus stayed in the grave, then y'all, we are wasting our time. But if he came out of the grave, oh, everything changes. This is another point where we miss it where we miss this because we get into situations, we get into moments, and Peter's gonna address that, where it seems like there is no hope, where everything is doom and gloom, everything's falling apart, life is terrible, there's so many trials, there's so many tribulations, and Peter says, oh, that doesn't matter. Is Jesus alive? Then your, your hope is alive. Is Jesus alive? Then what are you worried about? Everything else is gain. There is no loss for those who are in Christ Jesus. Everything up to and including death is a gift for those who are in Christ. Literally every breath is a moment of celebrating Jesus is alive. What do we do when we gather to worship? We don't gather to worship because we like getting goosebumps about a song that we sing. We, we don't gather to worship because they did some really cool VBS decorations. We don't gather to worship because the preacher's semi-entertaining. We gather to worship because Jesus is alive. Amen. And any other reason is going to obscure the fact that our hope is based in his resurrection. Paul Kingsnorth uh, is a name that you may not be as familiar with as Stephen Hawking, but he is a writer who is increasingly coming to shape my way of thinking. Paul Kingsnorth was an avowed atheist. He was a radical environmentalist. And he was radically changed by the grace of God. Came to faith in Christ. He'd been writing for years against all of these other things. And all of a sudden, if he found he had something to be writing for. He, instead of being opposed to everything that he saw was wrong in the world, now he suddenly says, wait a second, Jesus is alive. And that changes everything. In this last week, he sent an a, a email out to his blog subscribers. And in that, he's talked about the fact that he spent so long writing about what was wrong with the world, and he wanted to give the rest of his writing career to talking about what was right talking about God. And this phrase jumped out at me. After all, either God is real or he isn't. If he isn't, then you're wasting your time even thinking about him. If he is, then understanding him and being changed by him should be the work of your life. Look, it really is that simple, guys. It really is that simple. It's not Jesus plus wealth. It's not Jesus plus fame. It's not Jesus plus comfort. If Jesus is who he said he is, then it's Jesus, period. Nothing else matters as much as knowing him. If he is real and he is. 
This changes things. When we recognize Jesus is alive, therefore our hope is alive, then it becomes vital that we keep our eyes fixed on him. But it's so easy to get distracted, is it not? It is so easy to turn our attention from our living Savior to the dead things around us. It's so easy to lose hope when it seems like the world is crumbling around us. Maybe it's our personal world that's crumbling and our finances are going to pot and our relationships are all jacked up. We're not satisfied at work. Our kids are terrible at home. It's so easy to lose sight of the fact that Jesus is alive. And that's why Paul goes where he, or excuse me, Peter goes where he goes next. I think he says, you are being guarded. This is verse five. By God's power through faith for a salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. Your hope is alive because God guards it, not because you're strong enough to keep your eyes on Jesus. Your hope is alive because God guards it. How many of you have watched The Lord of the Rings? I said watch, not read. It's okay to admit it. Your pastors watch them too. I'm watching them again for the 10th time with my daughter. Extended editions only, please, by the way, just to prove how much of a nerd I am. But in the, in the second movie, there's this battle of Helm's Deep, right? And, and in this battle, there's a king, and he says, look, if our people go into this fortress, we've never been conquered. Nobody's ever managed to attack successfully Helm's Deep. Like five minutes into the battle, there's a culvert running under a wall. They pack it full of explosives and blow up the wall, and there goes Helm's Deep. It doesn't matter how impregnable you think your hope is. It doesn't matter how strong you think you are. When the enemy attacks, you do not depend on anything with a culvert running under the base. Anything that can be blown up, God can't. There's no chink in his wall. There's no break in his armor. And Peter says, we are being guarded by God's power. Our hope is alive because it's God who is guarding our hope. Our hope is not in us. It's not in our strength. It's not in our wisdom. It's not in our power. It's not in our fame. It's not in our resources. Our hope is in God's power. So why do we lose hope? If God's power can't be assailed, if there's no chink in that armor, the fault's not with God. Perhaps we've come out from behind the wall. Perhaps we've neglected to stay inside his fortress. Perhaps our flagging hope is a result of our rejection of God and his ways. We have to recognize that our hope is not something we can keep on our own. Our hope is something that is guarded by God himself. So long as we stay inside him, so long as we are with him, nothing can conquer but the moment we walk away, we're left open to the attack of despair. That, friends, should not be.
And that, friends, is why Peter gives the next bit that sounds an awful lot like bad news, but is actually good news. He says, not only is your hope alive because God's power is guarding it, he says, your hope is alive in spite of the suffering and trials that you face. It's alive in spite of those things. Verse six, you rejoice in this, God's power guarding you. You rejoice in this, new birth into a living hope. You rejoice in this, inheritance, imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, being kept in heaven for you. You rejoice in this, even though now for a short time, if necessary, you suffer in various trials. Peter says, look, even the trials, even the trials are not sufficient to overcome the hope that you have in Christ. Even, even the grief is not enough to overwhelm the Christ follower. Our hope is alive no matter what, despite anything the enemy can throw at us. Our hope is alive if we are hiding ourselves in Christ. People love to say, God, God won't give you anything you can't handle. God won't give you anything you can't handle. That is a lie. He will give you stuff that you can't handle all the time in order to show you your need for him. The moment you think you're strong and that's why you're facing this trial is the moment the enemy says, ah, got another one. No, God will give you more than you can handle. He will never give you more than he can handle. Our hope is alive despite the suffering, despite the trials, because God is the source of our hope. When the world looked darkest, Saturday, after the Son of God himself was crucified, the creator of heavens and earth was buried under the ground. And hope was alive. Right? How many of you guys have seen that sermon? It's Friday, but Sunday's coming. It's Saturday, but Sunday's coming. Brothers and sisters, every day is Sunday for those of us who are in Christ. Every day is a reminder of the power of Christ over the grave, and it is that power, the same power that raised him that guards us. And so our hope is alive in spite of our suffering and our trials. Next, Peter says that our hope is alive so that our faith would be praiseworthy. Now, this, this next part bears a little bit of explanation. When you look at this, it might sound funny. So that you suffer grief in various trials, so that the proven character of your faith, more valuable than gold, which though perishable is refined by fire, may result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. We are so conditioned to thinking about those terms, praise, honor, glory, as, a, as uh, being applied to God that we might miss what Peter's saying. He is not saying that the praise and the honor and the glory are to... Christ, although they will be, all praise, all honor, all glory will be to him. But what is he going to do? He's going to turn around and say to his people, well done, good and faithful servant. 
It is not wrong to long for praise so long as we are longing for the praise that comes from Christ. It is wrong to seek praise from the mouth of men. It is wrong to seek acclaim from this world and its power structures. It is wrong. But it is what we were made for, to want Jesus to praise us. We were made for that very purpose, that in receiving his praise, we might redirect it to him. Made in the image of God, the one who is worthy of all praise and honor and glory, we should recognize that any praise given to us is ultimately redirected to him. Who has the greater honor, a house or the one who built the house? That's what Jesus said about that. He doesn't say don't want praise. He doesn't say to us we should not seek to have a faith that is praiseworthy. He says to us don't seek praise from the wrong source. And what, Paul, what Peter is saying is our hope is alive so that our faith might result in hearing those words, well done, good and faithful servant. And then turning around and saying, well done, master. Well done, savior. Well done, redeemer. Well done, king of kings and lord of lords. Well done, lamb that was slain before the foundation of the world. Well done, Well done. But our faith, when it fails, fails to bring glory to God. And so our faith is intended to receive honor that we might give that honor to him. So why is our faith, our hope alive? So that our faith would be praiseworthy. Our hope is alive as well because of what God is getting ready to do. Our hope is alive because of God's work in the future. This is what he says. He says, though you have not yet seen him, you love him. Though you not seeing him now, you believe in him and you rejoice in inexpressible and glorious joy because you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Brothers and sisters, we do not yet know what we will be. But when we see him, we'll be like him. That's the salvation that Peter's talking about, the same salvation that John was talking about. There's the salvation that says there is none who can snatch me from his hand. There's the salvation that comes from being made alive in Christ even now. There's the salvation that comes from knowing him But there is that salvation that we long for. When every tear is wiped from every eye, when sickness is no more and death is no more, that's what we're going for. What God is going to do in the future, that's the salvation that Peter is talking about here. That salvation, he says, that's why you keep your hope alive because of what God's getting ready to do. Because of what God's getting ready to do, your hope is Alive. I keep saying Paul instead of Peter, but I'm going to quote Paul real quick, right? Therefore, we do not give up. Even though our outer person is being destroyed, our inner person is being renewed day by day for our, this is one of my favorite phrases in all scripture, for our momentary light affliction is producing for us an absolutely incomparable eternal weight of glory. Boy, that sounds like hope. This light and momentary affliction 
pales in comparison to the absolutely, I want you to notice just how many adjectives he stacks together on top of this. Absolutely incomparable, eternal weight of glory. Light's got nothing on incomparable. Momentary's got nothing on eternal. And so Paul says, we do not focus on what is seen, but what is unseen. And for what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Our hope is alive because of what God is getting ready to do. You don't know when he's going to do that. You don't know when you're going to step out of this light and momentary affliction and step into the incomparable eternal weight of glory. You don't know if Jesus comes back in the next five seconds or the next five centuries. Everybody says, Jesus has got to be coming back. Look how bad the world is. They've been saying that for 2,000 years, folks. If you're banking on that to rescue you from a light and momentary affliction, you're banking on the wrong thing. Because the point is not Jesus comes back and that solves the problems. The point is your hope is alive. Because whether he comes back or you meet him there, your end is assured. What God is going to do, save your soul, is undeniable, undoubtable. Your hope is alive because of what God is going to do. And finally, Peter says, our hope is alive because, what God, because of what God has done, because of his work in the past. He talks about this. He says, look, concerning this salvation, this thing that you long for, Concerning this hope that you have, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that would come searched and investigated, they inquired to what time, what circumstances, the sufferings of Christ, the glories that would follow. They were not serving themselves but you. And these things have now been announced. God's people for centuries have longed to know the thing that you know this morning, that Jesus Christ, as I asked the girls earlier, lived, died, and rose again. And that all of us are sinners, but if we will follow him, if we will humble ourselves, confess our sins, own him as Lord, we will be saved. For centuries, God's people wondered how was God going to keep his promises to redeem a people for himself, to make them faithful to him. Peter says, look at Jesus. Look at Jesus. That's what they were looking for. That's what we're looking back towards. Church, our hope is alive because of all of these things. Because we are alive. And we know we've been changed by Christ. If you don't know that you've been changed by Christ, let me ask you this. How do you tell the difference between a dead deer on the side of the road and a live deer on the side of the road? The dead deer doesn't move. He's not breathing, starting to stink a little bit. If you're looking at your life and there's no movement and you're not breathing and there's a bit of a stench, is it possible you're not alive? Is it possible Jesus hasn't actually changed you yet? Your response would simply be to say that. Jesus, I admit that I'm a sinner. 
I repent of those sins. I, I, I want nothing more to do with them. I just want you to be Lord. Our hope is alive because we are. Our hope is alive because he is. Our hope is alive because God is guarding our hope. Our hope is alive in spite of whatever we're facing. That may be you this morning coming in here with a burden that maybe everybody around you knows you're going through a hard time. Maybe nobody does. Maybe you're bearing it in silence. First off, Scripture tells us to bear one another's burdens. That means, church, we're responsible for those around us. We're responsible to come alongside those who are hurting. Also means if you're hurting, you're responsible to let others come alongside you. That's hard for us. But it's important. In spite of suffering and trials, our hope is alive, and he's given us one another to walk alongside through those difficult times. Our hope is alive because we want to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. We want the kind of faith that is praiseworthy, not the kind of faith that he says, depart from me, you worker of iniquity. I never knew you. We want a real faith, a true faith, so we keep hope alive because of what God's going to do in the future. Because of what he's done in the past, we have a living hope. Father, as we consider your word, as we reflect on how it is that you have entrusted to us salvation that we don't deserve, grace instead of justice, as Caleb said, God, thank you for your grace. But thank you for the fact that that grace comes, it wakes us up, it makes us alive, and it never goes away. It's meant to be working in us. It's meant to be changing us. It's not meant to be a wish. It's meant to be a reality. God, I pray that it would be such for each heart here today and that you, God, you would be glorified. Pray it in Jesus' name.